A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Eternal freelancer, Justin Ling. How you doing? Eternal freelancer. I don't know if I like that. <laughs> I'm not doing good. I feel like poo. I got a, <laughs> I got a vaccine shot yesterday. Did you? I can't wait to get mine. Unfortunately, I'm not uh, old enough. Uh, hang in there. You'll make it. <laughs> Welcome to Shortcuts. Always happy to be here. Justin, today on the show, you have never been more depressed about the state of the government in Canada, and I am here to help you work through those feelings. Yeah. Also, the fallout continues from Honorable Member Willie Amos's Jeffrey Tubin moment. What can one MP's exposed wang teach Ugh. us about responsible Whoa. journalism? It sucks. And about ourselves. <laughs> This episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Jacob Francis, Michaela Brown, Truly Love, Kent Dayball, Alex McMahon, Jacqueline Walters, Matthew Bennett, and Adam. Hi, this is Adam. I'm a mail carrier in the Niagara region, and I support Canaland because my job gives me lots of time to listen to podcasts such as Shortcuts, Commons, The Belated Oppo, and any other one where the guest can call Jesse stupid. Premier Doug Ford defending his government, deflecting blame. The restrictions that were announced in Ontario Friday prompted angry reactions from doctors across the province, including the government's own advisors. Calls for Doug Ford to resign grow. Ontario, BC and Alberta. There is talk in all of them of tighter restrictions. Never in modern times has Canada faced a challenge like this. 
Justin, I want to set the mood here by running through just a light sampling of the headlines and reports that we've seen recently as our society has continued to break down. Sure. And government response at all levels has been inept, absent, bewildering. Why don't we start with this one? The Washington Post uh, ran a headline on an op-ed by David Mosgrup, Canadian. Doug Ford must resign. Nice and blunt, right to the point. Did you read that one? I, I did. It was good. Yeah, I thought it was a, a good rundown. I do always appreciate the Canadian freakout of like, oh my God, the Washington Post has come around. Well, it's, it's, just a, it's just a Canadian in the Washington Post. It's not like any Americans actually took note or cared. Yeah, but the dynamics are always so interesting because some people were saying, oh, why do we need the Washington Post to say this? Canadian papers were plenty critical of Doug Ford, but there is a bit of a difference. The headline is just much more direct. And that headline triggered other headlines, like the Canadian versions were like, many calling for the resignation of Doug Ford or growing calls for the res resignation of Premier Doug Ford. Like City, City News and Global had those kind of passive versions of the same call for resignation. I guess we don't want to alarm anyone. Yeah, I, I mean, I also generally think it, it's hard to cover a government once you've called for their resignation. That's my always my hot take. Uh, but yeah, I do, I do love just the, the general vibe of like people are saying that Doug Ford should resign. I guess we better run a story on it. I don't know. I mean, if only we had spent a fraction of this time actually more aggressively covering the government instead of chattering about whether or not people maybe want them to resign. I do think that the press has generally been pretty good on yeah. being equal to the moment of just, um, I think, like an unprecedented level of, what do you even call it? Like, just of the faith in governance has never been more destroyed. And uh, in our Canadian way, the star had that front page that was like, we're yeah. losing the battle with quotes, like, just unbelievable. We're screwed. I tweeted it was criminal, and I meant that, quoting a doctor. Like, we still like to put it in other people's voices, but it was just a collection of um, really serious people decrying this government. I think I I've always have this vague concern that if things were to ever cross a line, that the Canadian media would not be well-equipped to handle it. It is a permanent anxiety I have that were a government to finally go and try and break core tenets of our democracy, the media would sort of have nowhere to go because we're so used to being hysterical about things. We kind of go between two modes, which is sort of underplaying things and then wildly overplaying them to the point where a lot of our readers just tune a lot of it out. But what actually was really heartening to me was to watch Doug Ford come out on Friday and announce basically a Dudley Do-Right version of a police state. And the media reacted exactly as they were supposed to. You know, entire civil society stood up and went, no, thank you. And it was a really heartening moment. As, as depressed as I am at the moment, I'm also heartened by the fact that our antibodies are actually working. We have, in a sense, a vaccine against tin pot dictatorships. I think that's a good point. Like the body politic was equipped and it was a mixture of form and content. I do think, you know, I don't see the hysteria that you see. I think we could use a bit more, though. Bruce Arthur is certainly letting it fly. I like Bruce Arthur in the star. This government has failed Ontario in the most unthinkable, unforgivable way. Ontario is imploding. How can anyone trust this government again? Accurate. But there's also mm. good analysis like Mike Crawley uh, for CBC News 
had a look at like, okay, you know, we're, we're in this cycle with Ford where the policies come out, they're absurd. Civil society pushes back and then he kind of retreats and tries to amend or backtrack. So we had uh, the Ford government prioritize vaccines for quote unquote hotspots. Mike Crowley does an analysis of those hotspots and finds five of the postal codes that Doug Ford declared as hotspots actually have hospitalization and death rates that are below the provincial averages. But four of them happen to be in writings that voted for Doug Ford's progressive conservatives. It just destroys the social contract. You know, those of us who are waiting our turn and trying to be good citizens, and then you see that, and it destroys something really delicate and valuable. Yeah, you know, I think I agree with that. Despite some of the really good coverage, though, I actually think the media bears a ton of responsibility for Doug Ford's belief that he can get away with this, Mm -hmm. right? I think the media over the last year or so have really been inept at underscoring the importance and the severity of what's at stake when a group like the science table says, if we don't do this now, we're going to see 5,000 and then 10,000 and then maybe 15,000 cases a day and our ICUs are going to be overflowing. You know, I think the media has done exactly what Doug Ford is doing, which is to go, yeah, well, on one hand, all these doctors are saying that our health system could literally collapse. But on the other hand, the Ontario Construction Consortium says these measures go too far. We'll have to split the difference, right? Like, I think we actually have set up this false dichotomy between public health measures and a functioning economy as though we have to find some spot in between the two. And there is a time and a place for that, right? Like I think when case counts are low and we're trying to figure out how do we maximize good, I think maybe there there is you know a, a good time and a place for that. But right now and for the past month, Ontario, as well as several other provinces in this country, have been facing down absolute disaster. And While I'm really heartened by the fact the media sort of stood up and those antibodies worked after Friday's insane, unbelievable press conference, I don't know that we have, generally speaking, done a good job of really needling governments and figuring out whether, in fact, their decisions are being backed up by good science. I think we snapped to form, but maybe like, well... Too late. And we knew this. Like, this was in the modeling. Yeah. This was in the recommendations. It was it was happening for a long time. It's where Canadianism fails us completely. Like, there's no compromising with the third wave. There's no compromising with the variants. Like, they'll just trample you. For all the bad rap that Twitter gets, this is where these things get parsed. What, what I saw was a lot of people kind of just, like, working through the policies and figuring out, like, wait a second. This doesn't make a lick of fucking sense. That's where people were just pointing out the gobsmacking stupidity. Like, I read somebody, like, saying, like, wait a second. So I can go into a place of worship where I can be indoors with nine other people from nine other households, but I can't go outdoors wearing masks with three other people from three other households. And I saw you on Twitter looking into like, wait a second, what are the workplace safety rules? Yeah, I mean, this was really frustrating. Like, I kind of jump in and out of covering these things. I am not a dedicated, you know, Ontario government watcher. But just to go through these regulations and notice, the government of Ontario says that if you are at a workplace that is not accessible to the public, so maybe a warehouse, a construction site, you know, many, many, many workplaces where we've seen outbreaks, you do not have to wear a mask indoors if you can maintain two meters of physical distancing. Two meters of distance indoors without a mask. That's that's actually the rules. 
Yeah, so that makes a ton of sense if you believe that COVID-19 is spread by droplets that fly out of your mouth and, you know, licking each other's eyeballs is the main form of transmission. It makes zero sense if you acknowledge the likely reality that most COVID-19 transmission comes from aerosolized and airborne copies of the virus. If you believe that, then this no mask, two meters distant thing is insane. It is dangerous. And the Ford government has announced more inspectors going into workplaces. If they're enforcing that standard, then it makes no fucking difference. There's no utility in enforcing a standard that is dangerous and that is going to basically enable more workplace outbreaks. And we know that the transmission of the virus is in large part, if not you know, majority driven by workplace outbreaks, though you'd never know that from listening to this government. And that's the problem with these rollbacks. And uh, when Ford says, OK, 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 you got me. I capitulate. We'll send some inspectors to workplaces or, oh, I'm sorry about those instructions to the cops. For, forget about that. You've already introduced so much confusion. And, you know, the cops, even when the cops were saying we're not going to enfor- enforce these new carding powers, we're not going to use them. Hamilton is like saying, like, we're not going to use them, you know, unless we really feel like it. Yeah. And today I'm I, I'm seeing a clip of like this big pot-bellied cop just smacking a kid off a scooter. I spoke to that kid's mom. And what's actually really interesting about that is that those were OPP officers, so they were going to enforce whatever you know marching orders they were given by Doug Ford. But what's really telling is that the cops were basically enforcing a, a version of the of the new walked back measures. The cops were wandering around asking for ID and asking why they weren't wearing masks. They weren't doing the arbitrary stops. They were doing basically a version of these less bad, updated, softer, kinder, gentler measures. They were uh-huh. going around asking kids for their ID, harassing them for not being physically distanced and not for and for not wearing masks, even though they were outside. And then ultimately that led to um, you know, a cop shoving a kid onto the ground, which is, you know, assault of a 12 year old by a grown man, which is, can I just say, not great. It's not great. And then, you know, with this shambolic rollout of like, okay, we're going to get this to 40 plus people. We're going to get this to hot zones and nobody can actually connect with a fucking vaccine. And so a Twitter account pops up. I mean, God bless them. And next time I hear people trash Twitter, like Vaccine Hunters Canada, just like <laughs> yeah. there's, there's there's vaccines sitting on the shelf. Some of it's getting thrown out. Let's get people connected with vaccine. That's great. It's great that we're doing that for each other. Why the hell is that necessary? It's almost like you could look at this like, isn't it great that we're all pooling together and volunteering and helping each other but you also get the sense of what it must like feel like to live in like a completely failed soviet state where you know neighbors have to help neighbors there's also a certain amount of snooping and, and going on and uh recrimination and you know people who have the time and the means to find little loopholes benefit watching as the wealthiest people in society found ways to get vaccines before the people who needed it the most was was super gross watching this hot spot rollout i think has underscored the depths to which this government is incapable of doing anything well. I'm not being hyperbolic here, and I know people are going to sit at home saying, oh, well, you're so mean to the conservatives. This is not even a conservative thing. This is a basic, are you capable of governing effectively thing? And Doug Ford is not. I've been writing about a whole bunch of the vaccine infrastructure piece, right? And It has become abundantly clear that Doug Ford has no clue what he's doing. Go back to the start of the pandemic and, you know, the Ford government did something kind of clever, which is that they built out a new dashboard for their provincial, you know, 
IT systems that were supposed to enable more effective and efficient rollout of the vaccine. That was somewhat smart. But also, they decided not to test it until like the middle of March when all of this was was already rolling out. And of course, once they finally rolled it out, it crashed immediately and has been a disaster. Rather than try to enable any sort of centralized booking that could be more efficient, they basically said, okay, well, whatever. The municipalities and the drugstores and the hospitals and the health authorities, they'll figure it out. So now you have this kind of myriad of different booking systems, some of which are working, some of which are not. Ford decided he was going to address the third wave by rolling out vaccines to these hotspots, but it became abundantly clear for anybody who was looking to what he was actually saying that he was not sending even remotely enough to actually vaccinate people in those communities. You know, he was sending one dose for every, you know, 10 people who needed it or, or whatever. And obviously, you spend a lot of time and energy and money setting up those pop-up sites only to close them down because you, they've used up their tiny pittance of doses that they were given. This was entirely for show. And, and you know, I was reporting out over the last few days the advice the science table was giving this government that they were summarily ignoring. And it was conveyed to me, the science table had said to the Ford government, you need to allocate half of your vaccine doses to these hotspot neighborhoods and to frontline workers, or else this is going to keep getting worse. Well, the Ford government went, oh, we'll do maybe 20%, 25%, and that'll be good enough. And I got on the phone with somebody from the premier's office, and the conversation you know, went with me going, well, they said 50%, you did 25 Why? And that person goes... Well, if, you know, if we had done 50, they would have said 75%. So what are you going to do? Which I think just totally underscores the arrogance, the incompetent arrogance of this government, which is that they know better. They know better than everybody. Screw all them eggheads at the science table, the ones that are supposed to be advising the government's, you know, entire public health strategy. Those friggin' scientists don't know what they're talking about. We're government. We know best. You know, fundamentally, I have lost any shred of faith that this government is capable of managing basically any facet of, of this pandemic. And if Ontario gets through this in one piece, it will be a combination of luck, the perseverance of individuals who have basically you know detached from their government and the very, very wonderful and capable frontline doctors and regional municipalities who have basically stepped up where the government has completely collapsed. All heap scorn on on this government, but there is a purposeful tactic, and it's the same one that Premier Horgan is is employing in BC, which is patronizingly blame individuals, target the youth. That's why this is happening. It's because people aren't staying home. It's because they're going out. And uh, what you do then is you set citizen against citizen. You set cops against citizens. It's our fault, and and it is a purposeful, willful strategy to keep the blame off of these premiers. Yeah. There's one thing I do want to say, and it's it's one thing that has been sticking with me and I think actually says a lot about our national media. And it's, it's something that actually someone from the premier's office told me. They basically went, our measures in Ontario aren't all that different than what Quebec is doing, than what Manitoba or Saskatchewan or Alberta is doing. They're similar to BC. But yet we're getting all this blame. And I went, okay, yeah, you're getting all the blame because you're you're rocketing up in cases and heading toward the collapse of your healthcare system. So yeah, naturally you're getting the blame. But their point actually wasn't all that wrong. I mean, several provinces have adopted policies that are so antithetical to the science that it boggles my mind that they can get away with this and that the coverage has been so tepid. You know, Manitoba 
reopen churches and let people congregate with their masks off. Mm -hmm. You know, Alberta has has consistently pushed to reopen gyms. Quebec did as well. Saw an explosion of some 600 cases in Quebec City from one gym alone. Kept them open for about three weeks before having to reclose them. And, you know, where is the outcry for that? You know, the Quebec government has instituted a curfew. There is a curfew in this fucking country. And we seem sort of meh. Like the shredding of civil liberties just to paper over the rank incompetence of our governments should make us very angry. Well, look, Quebec is where people did take to the streets. You're, you're, you're speaking to us from Montreal. That's where there were, I don't know, protests, riots. Yeah, and, and, and some of them are crazy anti-maskers and are horrible people. But there was also a lot of reasonable folks in that crowd who were just frustrated at the state of things. And the media has been enablers of Francois Legault from the get-go. I mean, La Presse, Le Journal de Montréal, a bunch of these people, even the Gazette at times, have basically cheered on his crazy attack on civil liberties and have failed to actually keep him accountable, have failed to, um, you know, go after the fact that he's also enforcing, you know, bans on outdoor gatherings and mask mandates for outdoor gatherings, even though they have no evidence to support the idea that outdoor gatherings are leading even a fraction of cases. The media has been compliant and it is really tough to watch. We're now in the third wave and this incompetence is killing people and they are putting the blame on us and the media is allowing it. How is the federal government going unscathed here? How are they getting off the hook? That doesn't seem right. So there's two things. One is we have a division of powers in this country, right? The federal government isn't responsible. Oh, come on. No, no, no. Hang on. The federal government is not responsible for our health system on the front lines. I mean, you know, that is that is a fact. It is very hard to yell at the federal government for the fact that gyms have reopened in Quebec or that people can congregate without their masks in workplaces in Ontario. That's not the federal government's job. You know, the flip side, what did the government actually fuck up? Obviously, the hotel quarantine system has been omni-shambles, and it feels like we had a week of bad press about that, then everyone fucking forgot about it, which is unbelievable. It is almost mind-bending to see that a government can't even run a goddamn hotel properly. Isn't that just the least of it? I mean, like, I'm just talking about a vacuum of leadership. Like, we can talk about whose job is what, but, like, do we have a prime minister? Who's in charge here? Well, this also strikes me as just, like, the, the, the core of Canadian whataboutism. Well, yeah, the provinces are doing a bad job, but what about the federal government? They must be doing bad, too. Everyone's bad. We have a federated system with a significant division of, of powers, especially around health. We have a ton of vaccines. We are doing relatively well. We're not America. We don't have a massive biopharma sector here that can be stood up immediately. I have a lot of criticisms of, you know, the fact that we didn't go to companies that are already on the ground who can make vaccines. But the reality is a quarter of the country is vaccinated in the first three months, four months of the year. That is a massive success. I cannot wrap my head around how quickly we've done this. It could have been faster. It could have been slightly better. But this is pretty fucking good. Somehow the, uh, the the JT apologist always always rears its head in our conversations. I mean, the reality is we're doing better than basically every country in Europe, save the UK. Who's what abouting now? Uh, I'll take solace wherever I can find it right now. It is absolutely a miracle that I sit here feeling miserable because I had a vaccine yesterday. And for that, I'm thankful. Justin, in my perpetual rage, it's possible that I could overlook things that mm -hmm. require attention. I'm going to duly note something here. Big news out of your province, out of Quebec, that I'm just starting to look at, which is the province's superior court upheld most of Canada's most racist law, Bill 21. I don't know what to think about this. One news source, the Canadian press, the headline is, Quebec court upholds most of province's secularism law. 
And then the Gazette says, breaking, Quebec Superior Court strikes down parts of Bill 21. I think everybody was watching to see if this thing would survive a charter challenge. And this went a, a typical Canadian way, which is like, ah, it sort of survived, a little bit of it didn't. And depending on whether you're an optimist or pessimist, you could see the glass is half racist or half anti-racist. I don't know. Uh, in, in any event, <laughs> I just want to note that this happened. I know that our French media correspondent, Emilie Nicolas, is deep in the judgment itself and also looking at how uh, it's getting covered in Quebec. I'm looking forward to chatting with her about that soon. But uh, this is a thing that happened. It's so frustrating. I mean, this story, I remember the last election, after one of the debates going up and asking every single one of the party leaders, will you not find a spine and do something about this horrible racist law? Or are you just fine living in a country where we have you know, one set of laws for you know, Muslim women and a different set of laws kind of for everybody else? And the rank cowardice coming from every single one of those leaders was, to say the least, frustrating. It is really sad that we've actually left this to the courts. I mean, the Quebec government basically baked in the notwithstanding clause to shield it from constitutional challenge. I mean, this is a bill that's going to require actual political courage to defeat. The courts probably won't be able to get rid of the whole damn thing. This is kind of why you're seeing a little carve out for the English school board and a little carve out for the National Assembly. So you know now the standard is going to be that English speakers can wear hijabs and kippahs and, and crucifixes, as can members of the National Assembly. But if you're in a French school or you know in any other place in society that Bill 21 covers, tough shit. Duly noted. Justin, what have you? You know, I think in the chaos of the last couple of weeks, we've let slide an actually really important thing that's happening right now, which is that the House of Commons is debating a piece of legislation that will effectively criminalize conversion therapy. This is a pretty significant piece of legislation. We are going to be one of the first countries to do this on a national level. And I think the opposition to it has underscored the degree to which the official opposition of this country, the Conservative Party, is still at war with itself and still contains some serious nut jobs. Just this past week, the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Rob Oliphant, who is himself openly gay, got up in the House of Commons to basically, you know, talk in, in support of this law. It is harmful prejudice, homophobia, transphobia, indeed all forms of discrimination that needs to be changed and converted. It needs to be converted into justice, into compassion, into understanding. And what was really galling is that, you know, he finishes what is what is quite a nice speech. And Tamara Jansen, the conservative MP for Cloverdale, Langley City in British Columbia, gets up to quote a Bible verse at him for one um, that is I'm not even going to read because it's 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 rather nutty. She then proceeds to go on and say, I have had so many people reach out to me in regard to this bill. Charlotte, a young woman in Calgary, was involved in lesbian activity. Oh, God. She struggled with self-worth and depression. She reached a point in her life when she did not want to continue with her lesbian activity, and her parents supported her choice and helped her find a counselor who helped her process the feelings. It is pretty bewildering to me that... In the year 2021, the year of our Lord, there is still MPs in the House of Commons getting up to defend conversion therapy to get rid of people's unwanted lesbian activity. Nobody even noticed this. Like, this barely got any coverage whatsoever, and it's just absolutely beguiling 
to hear those words spoken in the House of Commons from a party that, by the way, just as recently as the last few years, was still peddling, in some cases, you know, from very senior members of the party, peddling transphobic bullshit in opposition to a bill that would enshrine basic human rights for trans people. It is very frustrating. Duly noted. Uh, one final one, a quick one here. I want to duly note, Justin, that uh, Canada Land is, is looking for a managing editor. We're hiring, and it is not easy. We want somebody uh, who has either a lot of newsroom experience and is ready to manage a team of audio producers or has been a manager in a newsroom. And it's a good media job. And uh, in this day and age, I'm hopeful that uh, a good, steady media job will have some applicants. So I'm putting the call out. Go to canadaland.com slash jobs. Come work with us. No, thank you. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Justin, can I get serious for a moment? Yes. So here's what happened. You know, a question period, our MPs are on Zoom and there are dress rules. There's a dress code for Zoom. The way that the system is rigged up, uh, the parliamentary video system, the way it's configured, the only people who could see each MP's video feed were other MPs or parliamentary staff. Okay? That's where this, these images were getting sent to. And so that meant that while the meeting was open to the public, the actual video streams, which captured something, that was only visible to a small group of people and somebody in that group of people took a screenshot, and what they took a screenshot of was a naked dude. Yeah. Liberal MP from Quebec, William Amos. The honorable member uh, had his photograph um, distributed by someone, 
to a number of journalists. Quick update. Yesterday in the House of Commons, Bloc Québécois MP Sébastien Lemire revealed himself as the screenshot taker of the almost dick pic of Liberal MP Will Amos. I want to apologize, he said in French, to the House for breaking the rules when taking a picture of a colleague. He also apologized to Amos personally and to Amos's family. I believe that the first journalist to post this was Brian Lilly. Uh, Brian Lilly of the Toronto yeah. Sun had it out a little bit before Christopher Nardi of the National Post. And Justin, you know me. I usually applaud any petty humiliation of an elected official. And my <laughs> my uh, immediate response to this was just like, oh, that's just a, mo- a moment of shameful joy in an otherwise dark day. William Amos was quick to tweet, I made a really unfortunate mistake today, and obviously I'm embarrassed by it. My camera was accidentally left on as I changed into work clothes after going for a jog. Could happen to anybody. I sincerely apologize to all of my colleagues in the house. It was an honest mistake, and it won't happen again. Anyhow, I was just happy to laugh at this person's misfortune until Chris Parsons, who's a researcher with the Citizen Lab, who's been on this show before, he brought my attention to an aspect of this that I wouldn't have otherwise thought about. He tweeted, I'm very excited to see which member of parliament or which political party goes to the Canadian public and explains how their non-consensual sharing of an Mm -hmm. intimate image is not a violation of the Criminal Code of Canada. This is absolutely gross and reprehensible behavior and should be disciplined. And he followed up with a really thoughtful post called On the Non-Consensual Sharing of Intimate Images of Men. Justin, I've covered these cases of like, in a different context, you know, somebody comes into possession of a nude picture of somebody and shares it without the consent of that person publicly. And in almost every other instance I could think of, if it was a picture of a woman, if it was a picture of a trans person, if it was a picture, of course, of a minor, but really any other instance, the, the law is pretty clear that that's a criminal code violation. And, and the sense of ethics around that is like, that is a hostile, aggressive, abusive thing to do. But somehow because it's a guy, and I guess maybe because he's like fit, I kind of like locked into this like, oh, it's okay to laugh at this guy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a couple defenses. I mean, the fact that he's naked, but at least, you know, covering himself strategically bodes well for the fact that, you know, while this is embarrassing, at the very least, his honorable member is not actually out in the world. That is a saving grace. Um, you know, I, mm-hmm. I think at a certain point, a lot of the coverage was not so much of member naked in the house of commons live stream it was people on twitter are talking about this picture which is you know often our bullshit way to back into an unethical story um and that's about the length of my defenses for it i think it's gross like i i i don't think it was wise of any of us to run this story you know i i think if you had to kidnap one of the journalists who wrote the story and tie them to a chair and interrogate them on what the reasoning behind publishing it was. I'm not sure anyone could give you a good answer. There's no public policy angle to it. There's no hypocrisy to it. And there's truth to what his defense is. If you look at the picture, you can see on the bottom left of his little screen, it says connecting to audio, which means that he had just joined the call but had not fully logged into the Zoom meeting. Uh-huh. It was not a Jeffrey Tubin moment. He was literally getting changed in his office. And at a certain point, our constant Zoom-based lives now 
shred every level of privacy. I don't think anyone would say there's something inherently bad about getting changed in your office so long as, you know, you tell your staff or lock the doors or whatever. So why are we up in arms about it? Because we forced him to have all of his meetings in his office. I mean, that is inherently unfair. It's unfair to him. It's unfair to every single person who has to spend their lives in their bedroom sitting in front of a computer with a camera on all the time now. This life sucks. I think we can all agree this is garbage. <laughs> and yeah. I feel for the guy. I mean, you know, I, I I don't think it's fair to him that we had a day of national news coverage. I can try to kind of like uh, force a journalistic defense of this. Like, well, these there were rules about dress codes and this was semi-public and he's an elected official. And this demonstrates bad judgment on his part. And people have a right to no, know. No, it doesn't. I can't, get, to, no. I, I, I can't get there either. I can't get to the point where the Nonsense. where there's actually like a legitimate public interest. But there's also a journalistic process yeah. question here. I know, and I checked with Chris Nardi, like, what was the motivation for whoever screen grabbed this and shared this yeah. with, with Chris 100%. Nardi was obviously to score a really cheap point against a political rival. So we make decisions about whether or not to give people anonymity when they share stuff with us. And Chris Nardi confirmed to me that he knew the person, he knew the identity of the person sharing this, and that person's identity was not disclosed. So that tells us that confidentiality was provided. And I'm like... What is the justification? Like we give people anonymity if they could lose their job or, you know, if they might have there might be violent repercussions. There's all kinds of instances where we give people confidentiality. Like, would you give a source confidentiality in an instance like this? I mean, I wouldn't publish it, so it wouldn't really be material. But I've been thinking about this increasingly over the last little while. I am very expansive in how I use anonymity. I want to give my sources a lot of latitude to give me the unvarnished truth without having to worry about their name getting published and therefore their boss breathing down their neck. But at the same time, I also think it's really crucial that even if you don't use their name, you do tell the the reader what their you know motivation is here, right? I've been increasingly seeing voices show up in the paper or online or whatever where there just doesn't seem to be a connection between why they're saying what they're saying and who they are, right? Like, I think it's really important that we tell readers, you know, why this person is publishing yeah. this image or defending the government in this way. Like, I, I don't think it's okay that we give them this sort of like disembodied voice role. I want to know, was that a staffer? Was that another MP? Yeah. What party were they in? Why did they do this? Were they male? Were they female? You know, what? Give me something here. And also, were they sharing that image around in a haha type of way? Or were they sharing it around saying you should publish this? Because there's also a difference there. If this was merely shared as like, a, oh, my God, you'll never guess what happened in our live stream. And the journalist made the decision to publish it. That's a different beast as well, um, because at that point, we have to start talking about the ethics of the journalist involved to make that decision, because if your source didn't want you publishing it and there's really no news value to it, why'd you do it? Why'd you do it, Brian Lilly? And to a lesser degree, Christopher Nardi, who, who did it second. But Brian, why? Well, I think that the backstory as to how this was screen grabbed and shared and why is probably a more substantial political news story than the the dick yeah. pic itself. I'll be fair to Chris Nardi here. You know, he sort of answered a different question than the one I asked. I said, what's the justification for uh, granting anonymity? What he said was to kind of question the idea that this was accidental, I guess, or I'll just read what he wrote. If I recall correctly, the rules of virtual parliament question period are that an MP must have the camera on if they log in to attend QP. So how does an MP log in? 
in to question period by mistake? Or if he willingly logged into question period and then changed, why did he expect his camera to be off? QP rules are that your camera has to be on to be allowed to attend. So that was his response to my questions. That's weak. Got shortcuts. Thanks, Justin. I didn't say anything bad about the Liberal Party this entire time, and now I feel like I'm in the tank. I feel that way, too. You can email Fuck you. You can email me about the show at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything that you send. Uh, we're it. on Twitter at, at Canadaland. Justin Ling, where can people find you? Uh, I don't know. Uh, don't. Just don't find me. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. Fair enough. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Kevin Sexton. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you want to receive ad-free versions of all the podcasts on this network, we rely on your support. Please uh, give it to us by hitting the link in the show notes or just go to CanadaLand.com slash join. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.